Okay, Exodus 20, starting at verse 22. Down to 21, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone, but if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. But if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as, a man, as men's servants do. If she does not please the master, she has selected Sorry. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Okay, now we're going to turn to Mark. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Okay. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of the all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Amen. So let's pray. 
Father, we want to thank you that your word is uh, sweeter than honey, that it uh, is uh, uh, more precious than gold or silver. Uh, Father, that it uh, uh, gives life to our souls. Father, that it is the way that uh, it teaches us about you and how it is that you would have us live in response to the gospel. So we pray for all of us now, the children and next door and for each of us here, that uh, by your spirit you'd be teaching us and challenging us and encouraging us through your word today. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. People have different attitudes towards uh, the legal system. Uh, people have different attitudes towards police and towards courts and judges and so on. Uh, in Australia, we're very blessed to have a police forces and court systems which are relatively free from corruption, uh, at least in relation to some other systems that we know about around the world. And yet uh, people still have varying attitudes towards police and justice systems. Our attitudes, though, tend to be shaped according to which side of the law we're actually on, don't they? Now, I remember when I was growing up, some of the people I knew, uh, they, you know, when they were talking about police, they'd call them pigs. And you, could, you can guess what side of the law they were on, can't you? <laughs> Where they saw the police as being like their enemies, the police as being bad people, dreadful people, people who they... And yet most of us tend to respect the police and we tend to respect the, the law courts, and rightly so, because uh, we believe that it's good to uh, live in a society where, uh, where there are laws uh, which regulate our society. Uh, there are laws that say how you can live and how you can't live. There are laws that are enforceable and that there's punishments because that means that we can, most of us, uh, live uh, in a fair degree of safety and peace. And so we appreciate having laws, don't we? We appreciate the court system. But when we read about the law in the Bible, the appreciation of the law, according to the Bible writers, is on a far higher plane. You know, in our prayer earlier on, I was quoting from Psalm 19, which um, says that God's law, uh, apparently it revives the soul. Uh, God's law makes wise the simple. God's law actually gives joy to the heart that it is sweeter than honey and it's um, more precious than gold. Now, how are we going here at the moment? Is everyone a bit too hot? I'm getting, that, I'm getting the fans being waved and so on. Could someone flick on the aircon? Maybe just the ones up the top here, up the front, that might just be helpful for the rest of us. Okay, good. Probably good to sort some of those things out rather than suffering through the whole of the service. God's law in the scriptures is considered to be sweeter than honey and more precious than, than gold. Now, I know, realise that there'll be some uh, law students who say that they absolutely love the law, but not like this, not like the way that the law is presented in God's word. Now, today, it is to God's law that we, chain, that we turn our minds. Remember back in February, we we wrapped up our series of sermons on the book of Exodus. 
and uh, it was a good series. I enjoyed preaching it. I hope it was helpful uh, hearing it as well. But when we looked at Exodus, uh, we, we learned about Moses and we learned about how God had sent Moses to Egypt to, uh, to confront Pharaoh and to, ask, to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And we saw how it was that God rescued his people out of Egypt. There was the ten plagues and then there was the, the crossing of the sea. And where we ended up was uh, with the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And we fleshed those commandments out uh, to a higher degree than we would have some of the other parts of the scriptures in Exodus. And that was a good place to stop. But we start again today. And if you care to turn your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 20, from verse 22 of Exodus 20, we, we find the beginning of a new set of laws, a different set of laws, which is actually called the Book of the Covenant. And it's referred to as the Book of the Covenant in chapter 24, verse 7. Now, um, Ten Commandments, everyone's heard of them, haven't we? Book of the Covenant, we're not so familiar with, are we? It doesn't sort of rank as high on the uh, uh, agenda of our, our knowledge. The Book of the Covenant is a set of laws which goes from chapter 23, verse 19, and it covers many aspects of life, many areas of life. Now, we're not going to look at all of those areas of life or all of the laws today. To do so would require a much longer sermon. Uh, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the big picture and we're going to unpack just just two areas of the, the laws covered by the Book of the Covenant, and we're going to draw out some principles from those two areas which may help you in your reading of the rest of the Book of the Covenant. But before we do that, I just want to say a few words about context. First of all, these laws uh, come after salvation has already happened. That is, Israel had already been rescued out of Egypt by God. And so these laws in the Book of the Covenant are about how God's people Israel are to live given that they have already been saved. Now that's always important to bear in mind because there are people who say, well, if you obey X, Y, Z laws, then you will be saved. No, salvation has already happened. They've already been delivered out of Egypt and these laws help them to live as God's saved people. That's the first point. The second point is this. These laws are given whilst they're still in the desert. That is, they are before they have entered into the promised land. Now, Israel might have thought that they were going to enter into the promised land fairly soon, but they didn't, and the reason they didn't was because of their lack of trust in God. Uh, they could have entered earlier but they were afraid to do so they didn't trust that god was going to protect them so as a result they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years so these laws are given prior to them entering into the promised land but some of these laws will only be applicable once they have entered into the promised land because they deal with things like property light property rights in respect to farms so, uh, you know, what to do if a certain thing happens, you know, if your neighbour's cattle 
wanders onto your field and eats your grass. Uh, they deal with things like vineyards and so on, the kind of stuff that will be part of Israel's life after they've entered into the Promised Land 40 years hence. The third thing to note is that although Moses' father-in-law Jethro had uh, said to Moses that he needed to establish a system of judiciary, that is, he needed to appoint other judges so that Moses wasn't doing all of the work of judging which would tire him out. Although uh, Jethro had told Moses to set up a judiciary, these laws do not originate with Moses. They're not just cases that Moses has kind of come across and thought up a law for and written it down and distributed it to the other judges. No, the, 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 the passages make it clear that these laws are a revelation from God. Um, we see that in chapter 21, verse 22, when it says in the introduction, then the Lord said to, Mo the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. Um, and at the back end in chapter 23, verse 20, uh, it's the Lord who says, see, I am sending an angel ahead of you. So who is speaking? It is, it's God who's speaking. Uh, it is not Moses. Now, there are many laws in the Book of the Covenant, many, many laws, and Christians have sometimes struggled to know, what do we do with these laws? How do I understand the application of these laws for us as Christians? Are we to live by these laws? Some of them don't seem relevant to us. So do we pick the laws that are relevant to us and discard the laws that are not relevant to us? What do we do with these laws? Particularly when to, a person has a gripe with another person, a complaint, and it needs to be sorted out. Now, I have a gripe. I've got a gripe. Actually, he's next door with Peter Charles. Many years ago, I owned a goldfish. And uh, my goldfish, uh, well, he lived rather precariously, I might add, in a pond which was in our garden. Now, we went on holidays. And I gave my goldfish to Peter Charles for safekeeping. Instead of my murky pond that I rarely cleaned, my fish was going to enjoy three weeks, a three-week holiday in the luxury resort of Peter's pretty flashy fish tank. Some of you might remember that fish tank. Upon my return, Peter informed me that my goldfish enjoyed the resort-style fish tank. Until he met up with Peter's red fire fish and didn't live to tell the story. Now Peter alleges that he didn't know it was a red fire fish. He alleges that he was duped by the pet shop owner. And it was a cute, friendly looking fish that grew up into this red fire fish that ate my fish. Now, <clears throat> In chapter 22, verse 10, I know it's referring to livestock, but there's a principle there in chapter 22, verse 10, 
which kind of covers that situation and outlines what Peter owes me. All right, on a more serious note. <laughs> In the Old Testament, there are two main types of laws. Uh, first of all, there are laws which are broad, unconditional laws. The technical term is apodictic laws. You can forget about that, but just broad, unconditional laws. Now, the, the Ten Commandments are examples of those apodictic uh, laws, broad and unconditional laws. You shall not kill. Right? It's broad, it's unconditional. But then there is a whole body of case laws. And case laws uh, assume they're predicated upon the, the, the reality that one of the absolute laws has been broken, but in a particular way. And the case laws articulate some of those particular ways and then give particular punishments or judgments for the particular way that the uh, unconditional law has been broken. For example, in chapter 22, verse 2, um, <clears throat> a thief breaks into your house and your home when the thief breaks in and uh, <coughs> you grab a, I don't know, a... Uh, you know, a saucepan and whack him over the head and he falls and he, and he dies. Now, to what extent are you accountable for killing someone? Well, the Book of the Covenant says that if that happened in the night time when you couldn't see that he was just in your house because he was after a loaf of bread, then you're guilty. You're guilty. But if it was in broad daylight, then you're not guilty. You see the idea? It's a case law applying the absolute laws to specific and particular situations. Now, many of the laws in the Book of the Covenant uh, are about those kind of case law type of situations. There is some of the absolute law stuff, but mostly it's case law situations. And many of the laws in the Book of the Covenant will, same, will, will make perfect sense to us uh, they, they're quite understandable, but some will seem strange. Uh, strange sometimes because of social context. For example, and we're going to look at this in a few moments, laws relating to servants and masters. Now, I know you might feel like you're a bit of a servant to you know, a master at work, but it's not the same situation. Uh, there, is a, there is a different workplace arrangement that's envisaged here which is actually quite strange to us. So that's the social situation at the time. Um, other laws may seem strange because of the religious context. For example, in chapter 23 verse 19, there is a law that says that you're not allowed to cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you think to yourself, well, the thought of a cooking a goat in its mother's milk had never occurred to me. <laughs> Why would I do that? That's weird and it's strange. What's the... When we look at it, though, in the, with the laws that are around it, the laws that, that come before that are, are cultic laws. By cultic, I, I don't mean J-dubs. I mean 
cultic in terms of the ritual. And what it seems to be, and we can't be certain about this, that, but it's likely that the religious context is that it was part of pagan worship, part of what they would do, uh, the, the nations, the, the non-Israelites the non would do in their worship when they'd offered up a goat that they would then cook it in its mother's milk for some religious reason. And so it's saying that uh, don't do that. Israel's got to be different in that situation. But it seems strange to us because we're not part of that religious context. But when we look at the big picture of the Book of the Covenant, what we see is if we can uh, get an overview and then if we can distill what are the key issues in all of the laws, we see that what it does is that it covers the two big themes of the Ten Commandments. And what are those two big themes in the Ten Commandments? Well, commandments number, numbers one to three are about loving God. You know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a, uh, idols. You shall not blaspheme the name of the God. Numbers one to three about loving God. Numbers four through to seven are about loving your, your neighbour. Do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false testimony, do not covet and so on. And so those are the two big themes that um, permeate through all of the laws of the Book of the Covenant. Loving God and loving your neighbour. And these two themes we actually see uh, quite well illustrated in the first two sections of law, which we are going to spend a few moments just unpacking briefly, but uh, to get the, uh, the idea as to the kind of issues that come up when we look at these laws, we'll unpack these two sections. First of all, in chapter 20, uh, verses 22 through to 26, there are laws about loving God in worship. Now, let me read those for you, uh, just to refresh your memory. Verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourself that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goat and your cattle. Whenever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If, you. if you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. Now, the, as I said, the first three of the Ten Commandments were about worshipping the Lord, worshipping Yahweh alone. And so as we get into the Book of the Covenant, it's, it's fleshing out how this actually should be done. And in fact, the laws, all of the laws which follow uh, throughout the whole of the book, they're not just about the good ordering of society. They do do that. But they're not just about the good ordering of society. They are about living God's way. And so it makes sense that the Book of the Covenant should start with laws about worship. But check out these laws. 
I mean, it tells you, it tells the Israelites how and what an altar uh, should should actually look like. Uh, it says, "Make an altar of earth for me," and uh, it tells them that uh, they're not to build it with dressed stones. Uh, dressed stones being stones which you've used a tool to to, to chisel. They're actually to be uncut stones. Now, why? Well, most likely, it is so that Israel's altars would be different to the pagan altars of the Canaanites. <coughs> that is, altars to the true God are to be different. It's saying that this is how the pagans build their altars. The pagans build their uh, build, build, their, build their altars with, uh, with chiselled, carved stone. I don't want you to do that. Be different. Now, the same goes for the no steps law. Did you notice that? And you're, not to, you're not to walk up steps to get to the top of the altar because if they do, someone below is going to look up and going to see their nakedness. It's strange, isn't it? Um, why is that an issue? Well, most likely, again, it's because of the religious context and it's because uh, in Canaanite religion, Canaanite religion was, was actually very sexual. It involved um, sex acts. And, uh, uh, and God's, the worship of God has got to be nothing, nothing like that. I mean, later on, uh, God actually um, provides uh, instructions regarding the kind of clothing that priests can wear, which, which are feel fairly sure you wouldn't be able to just look up. Um, but uh, here, it's not about modesty uh, uh, purely. It's about being different from Canaanite religion. By, by, by building their altars differently, uh, the Israelites were saying very clearly that they worship a different God. Uh, these are laws about loving uh, the one and only God and worshipping him alone. Now, the, the, the next section, the, the next section in chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, having started off by, with laws about how you go about loving the Lord in worship, this next section is all about how you go about loving your neighbour, and particularly when your neighbour happens to be uh, your servant or your or your master. It makes sense, actually, that this set of laws should come next, should, should be second in the Book of the Covenant, because uh, Israel had just been rescued from an oppressive master, Pharaoh. And their rescue from an oppressive master should actually shape uh, the way that they conduct themselves in their relationships as God's people. Now, let's have a look at um, chapter 21, verses 2 to 4. Let me read that. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes... She is to go with him. 
If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. It's an interesting set of laws, isn't it? And that um, <clears throat> this section here seems to deal with marriage relationships in the context of uh, the master-servant relationship. And I think it's important for us to, firstly, to, to strip away some of our, our thinking about what, that, what the master-servant relationship might have been like. Uh, in other versions, uh, it actually uses the, the word slave. I think the concept here is it's more of a bond save. It's a, a slave that's a servant, in a sense, because they've actually sold themselves into the situation for a financial reason. Because when we think of master-servant relationships, we tend to equate that with oppression, don't we? Uh, especially if we use the word slave and master. Uh, we think of um, innocent African people caught up in warfare in Africa, um, uh, captured and then sold by their... Um, uh, by their enemies at slave markets in ports in Africa and then uh, transported on dreadful ships across the ocean and if they survive the journey, then going to market again and being sold to a person who's got a cotton field in Mississippi or Alabama or Louisiana and North Carolina, South Carolina. That, and then it's against their will. It's completely and totally against their will and they're stuck with it for life. There's no sense of freedom. That's not envisaged. Well, this is different to that. In the ancient world, a person might sell themselves to a master perhaps to, in order to get money to pay back a debt. And to belong to a household of a, of a wealthy person may in fact be a blessing. Um, to belong, for example, to, to the household of Abraham would actually be a good thing. I mean, it didn't work out great for Hagar, but Abraham had a big household of servants and maidservants. That would have been a good thing because the servant would come under the protection and the provision of the master. A roof over the head, work for the hands, food in the stomach. But notice here that the master-servant relationship in Israel had some stipulations. In fact, it was to be different to the, to the culture around and the law was good for servants because after six years of service, the servant would go free. Uh, whatever <clears throat> money has been paid to him or her, after six years of working, that's it. Free in the seventh year. The seventh year is very important. The number seven is very important in the Bible, isn't it? Because seven is Sabbath. Seven means rest. And uh, <clears throat> this is very much bound up in this particular law. And the law reflects 
the Sabbath rest for, for God's people. And it, in fact, points us to ultimately to Jesus, who is the, the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus is the one who, uh, through, he, through a, in a relationship with him, that we have freedom from bondage, that we get a fresh start on life through Jesus and his gospel. And it's also reflected in the Old Testament concept of the year of Jubilee. Um, after 49 years, in the 50th year, um, the reset button is pressed. Land goes back to its original owners. Servants, slaves are set free. Debts are cancelled. Uh, a fresh start, which again points us to Jesus ultimately, who is the fulfilment of the year of the Jubilee. And so this is, law points us to Jesus ultimately, but it's also good for the servants, isn't it? It's good to be able to press that, to get, that, get a fresh start on life after six years of being bonded to a master. And the law is good for masters as well. <clears throat> because in verse 3, and this is where this... It, it, there's a lot to do with marriages that are taking place in the... The, the, in a wealthy household in this section. And in verse 3, a man cannot sell himself as a servant and then fall in love with one of the female servants in the household and then he, when he's six years is up, uh, he leaves his master and he takes his wife and kids along as well because the, the wife may have only clocked up one year of service. Well, two years, she, she may have more years that she owes to the master. And so uh, he can't just take her away with him. To do so would be unjust towards the master, in fact. But it's not the only option here because the, the Book of the Covenant envisages in Israel that there will be situations where it's actually a terrific thing to be in the household of this master. Have a look at verse 5. In verse 5, but if the servant declares, so it's saying he can't just take off with the wife and kids if she hasn't served her six years, but if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and I do not want to be free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. There's cultural stuff there about the door and the doorpost and piercing of the ear and so on. But you get the idea, don't you? That here is actually the opportunity for lifelong service and security for his family. Under the protection and the provision of a godly master who is actually loved by the servant. So it's not a dreadful thing, is it? It's actually it's the way that their society uh, was functioning and it provided that long-term security, uh, that livelihood into the future. But then in verses 7 through to 11, if you want to scan your eyes down those verses for a few moments, um, 
this is a bit, bit more unusual for us because it, envis it envisages a situation where a father might sell his daughter to a master. Now, this is not what we would do in our society, but in the ancient world, it may have actually provided her with a better living circumstance than she would otherwise have uh, in a good household with that security and that protection, uh, particularly as a single woman. And here, she is either the servant of the master or she's selected to become the wife of his son. And these laws provide, in those circumstances, protection for the woman. Um, take a look, for example, at verses 7 and 8. Uh, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as men's servants do. Now, we don't actually know why that's the case because in Deuteronomy chapter 15 uh, the law clearly provides that the freedom after six years is there for uh, men and women. So there may be something specific here that, uh, uh, that, that's in mind. But uh, it goes on to say, if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. That is, if he's not happy, if the master's not happy with this situation, then he must allow for the girl's family to come and to, to pay back the money, to pay back what's, uh, and to pay, pay back what's owed for her, for that she's redeemed out of that circumstance. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. He can't say, well, I've had her for two years, but she's indebted for six years, so I can go and sell her off to a, an Egyptian or, you know, for four years. Can't do that, because she's one of God's people. She's got to stay within the community of God's people. And it, it goes on to say, if he selects her for his son then he must grant her the rights of a daughter. So uh, she's not to be... The fact that she was a servant and now is a, the, 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 the wife of his daughter means that she's not treated as a servant. She's no second-class person in this household. She is granted the status of a, of a daughter. That's clear. That is unequivocal. And if he goes and marries another, which I take to mean the son... If he goes and marries another woman, which he ought not to do, by the way, he's not, he's not advocating this, it's just saying that this is, in a sinful world, this is something that sometimes happens. If he marries another woman, he must derive her, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing and marital rights. And if he does not provide her with these three things, then she's to go free without any payment of money. That is that uh, that her parents not required to pay back money to the master. Right? And in the situation, we know that in the culture that there was polygamy going on. We saw that, didn't we, with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Um, this is actually providing protection for the woman uh, in those circumstances. 
bit different to the world we live in, isn't it? But uh, we can see here uh, that it would also be very different to what might otherwise be the case in that time, in that part of the world, if these circumstances were happening amongst people who were not God's people. God's word is providing for the benefit. Uh, it's providing, the laws are saying, this is how you should love your neighbour who happens to be your servant or your master in a way that is distinct and different from the world around. Now, the remainder of the book of the covenant actually covers a very diverse range of areas of life. And one of the things that that shows us is that God is actually very interested in, the, in, the, in every aspect of our lives. Uh, the, the book of the covenant uh, covers areas of law such as personal injury law, um, property law, social welfare law, and so on. But what we've seen is that it begins with laws on worship. And guess what? It ends in chapter 23, verse 14 and following, with laws also on worship. Because for Israel, all her laws which regulate life are set in the framework of worship. They're set in the framework of having a relationship with the Lord. And the salvation experience which they've had through the Exodus, the salvation experience undergirds every aspect of how Israel is to live. And for example, um, in chapter 23, verse 9, uh, they're told that they are not to, not to oppress aliens. And the reason given? Well, guess what? You were once aliens yourself in Egypt. You knew, you know how that felt. Well, I'm a saving God and I've rescued you from that. Do not do that to others. It's rooted in the salvation experience and the experience of oppression. The other thing is that it's rooted in, in the grace that flows from that. So that uh, in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, when something bad happens to their enemy to the person who hates them, then they're actually to extend grace. You don't just extend love and care to the people who are your friends. It says that they're also to, to do so towards their enemy, that they are to help even the person who hates them. That's grace. And it flows from the salvation experience. So then, how should we as Christians apply the book of the covenant? Does it give us a system of master-servant industrial relations or a system of marriage that we should implement? Um, that may seem far-fetched, but guess what? Um, uh, slave owners in the southern states of America in the 18th and 19th centuries did exactly that. They said that what we're doing is right because it's in God's word. <laughs> Shall we implement this system? 
Well, the answer is no, because these laws are not for us. The book of the covenant tells us how God wanted Israel to live. Loving God and loving their neighbour in their social, economic and cultural context. We live in a different context. But not just socially, economically and culturally. As Christians, we live in a, in a framework of salvation which is not salvation from slavery in Egypt. We live in a context of a framework of salvation which is salvation from the slavery and the punishment of sin. That is salvation through Jesus who, by the way, perfectly obeyed every single one of the Old Testament laws and yet he was punished in our place so that we can be saved. That is our salvation experience and Pete's going to talk more about that in a couple of Sundays' time, linking the law and grace and showing all of the connections. <clears throat> He'll do that as long as he forgives me for what I said about his fish. <laughs> but we live in that salvation context, which means that we are people who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we give ourselves over to loving God and loving our neighbour in all aspects of life and not because of a written code but rather because God's law is written on our hearts, rather because we have a, a heart of gratitude to God for the gospel. More of that in a couple of weeks' time. But what about my goldfish, by the way? Well, the good news for Peter is that even if we did apply these laws to us, even if the Book of the Covenant was for you and me, here today, well, on the basis of chapter 22, verse 11, no restitution is required. But he has to make an oath that A, that he was duped by the pet shop owner, and B, that he didn't actually steal and kill my fish himself. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that in your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness towards your people that you have set our lives within the framework of loving you and experiencing salvation through Jesus. We pray, Father God, that in all aspects of our life that we would be loving you, that we'd be seeking to love our neighbour uh, in the way that you have so graciously done so for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.